This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then historian Dr Alessandro Antonello, a senior research fellow at Flinders University, joined me to talk about the history and politics of Antarctica, as well as another hot summer on the coldest continent on Earth. Alessandro has written a piece for Inside Story as well as a book called The Greening of Antarctica. Then, finally, journalist and author Kate Lever joined me to talk all about her new book, Good Dog, which looks at the many benefits of the human-canine bond and some of the ways that dogs save our lives. I'm really uh, delighted to have with me on Skype Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and uh, we're going to be talking all the latest in federal politics. Hi there, Ben. Morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty excited that there's some sunshine. Yeah, yeah, the sun's pretty nice this morning. I must get out of the house. Yeah, <laughs> it's like got to remind yourself there is a world outside. I know. Scary times. How are you doing though, Ben? I'm okay, thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah, doing all right. Um, you know, I'm getting a little bit stir-crazy in the lockdown, but, you know, trying my best. <laughs> Peaks and troughs, I feel. You kind of have yeah, these moments yeah, of insanity. Exactly. yeah. Now, let's talk about federal politics. Um, One of the elements that uh, is still ongoing and it's kind of interesting to watch and maybe just for for the um, political-minded people like myself and maybe even you, we can actually live stream the Senate Select Committee that's looking at the coronavirus at the moment And they are interviewing a range of people, um, people giving evidence. And one of those people who gave evidence recently was Brendan Murphy. Um, And they were talking about the Ruby Princess debacle. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting that Brendan Murphy only found out about, um, the, the passengers who were allowed by, um, someone to disembark the Ruby Princess in New South Wales, uh, early, um, right before actually the test results for coronavirus had not yet come back. And they were talking about whose responsibility it actually was in his mind. Uh, and he suggested it was the Department of Home Affairs. What do you think about that kind of evidence and what the Select Senate Committee has been looking at so far and has it been revealing anything of interest? So um, I don't think it's uh, revealed anything particularly explosive so far. Um, So far it's sort of mainly gone over territory we already know. There was a very interesting testimony from the doctor on the Ruby Princess who said that she would not have... Uh, let the patients go if it was up to her. It does seem to have been a decision taken by the New South Wales authorities um, in conjunction with Border Force. Um, So we're still yet to get to the bottom of exactly what the internecine kind of machinations behind the bureaucracy were. It's kind of a bit of a worry, though, isn't it, if if we still don't know whose actual responsibility something like this was, then how are we meant to kind of make decisions in the future? Yeah, absolutely. We need to get to the bottom of this. And I think it just, you know, once again gives the lie to the government's border security rhetoric, you know. When the, the crunch came, when we were faced with a genuine threat to our biosecurity at the borders, the government has failed here. 
And I think we do need to get to the bottom of this. And I think some blame needs to be assigned. Um, unfortunately, I, I think it's unlikely that any accountability will emerge from this. Just like normal. <laughs> well, yeah, that's... pretty much. I mean, you know, <laughs> What's new? Like, we've had a, a decade of inquiries into the immigration department in its various guises, um, and they've repeatedly found terrible mismanagement, maladministration, um, you know, devastating problems going on in, in the jails in, you know, offshore detention centres, for example. Uh, but there's never any accountability for those problems and, and indeed the decision makers are rewarded. Mm, indeed. Now, um, one of the, the key kind of elements of government uh, response at the moment has been the new app, the COVID Safe app, which the government actually released and put up onto the app store over the weekend and has been uh, encouraging people, people who have a device, of course, to download this app. Um, first up, what is the purpose of the app? Uh, what's the government actually hoping this app will show or share with us? And um, what have been some of the criticisms? Because we've seen a number of uh, tech and IT experts really um, looking into, I guess, a great level of detail to make sure that whatever this app is doing, that it's actually going to be doing it safely and uh, managing our privacy as best that we can. Yes, yeah, so the app is designed to aid the authorities to do contact tracing. So in the event where people are getting infected with COVID, it allows the authorities to go and look at the app if you've downloaded it onto your phone and see who you've been hanging out with in the previous month or so. Um, and it does that by a range of techno wizardry, including Bluetooth and some other kind of contact tracing technologies um, of course, there's major privacy implications and the federal government has a very poor record of protecting its citizens' privacy. There are also some technical issues. For example, uh, the app appears only to work on iPhones um, if you have your phone on and not locked, um, which is, uh, for anyone who's ever owned an iPhone will know that that's not a very common <laughs> state for your phone to be in. Um so, you know, there's a whole bunch of policy, governance, privacy issues, uh, but that hasn't stopped more than a million people from downloading the app already since its launch on the weekend. Mm, well, we're already up to two million now, so uh, things oh, are... Oh, sorry. Well, there you go. No, that's all right. Come to me, Amy, <laughs> as usual. My life on Twitter, as yours is too. Um, it's really good, though, because you do get up-to-the-minute info, don't you? Um, so I, I was really interested about that, and I think, as you know, anyone who does have an iPhone like they are designed to be locked because now um, Apple literally will either ask for a passcode and that's like the old school version. Now um, it'll usually, you'll look at it and it looks at your face and knows that it's you and will unlock the phone. So um, as people know, it's very rare for that to happen. But one of the other issues is that if the app is kind of going on in the background with it unlocked and your screen is meant to be, I guess, dimmed to pretend like it's not unlocked, uh, it really has an issue in terms of back battery draining um, and yeah it, it seems like it's not going to be perhaps as effective as the Android users um, and that might be an issue so even if we have I guess a high uptake of Apple users downloading the app um, it's potentially the case that many people would not realize that they need to leave the app open and running and their screen unlocked. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think that it's got to call into question the effectiveness of this app, at least on iPhones. It apparently does work pretty well on Android phones. Um, look, I don't think anyone thinks that this is a panacea or that will implement the kind of draconian panopticon that the critics fear. Uh, Singapore, for example, had a very sophisticated contact tracing app that a lot of their citizens had downloaded and installed. It wasn't able to stop the outbreak, the second wave outbreak of COVID-19 in Singapore, particularly amongst migrant workers. So um, I don't think, you know, obviously no app can stop the, um, the spread of the virus. It can only trace it after it's happened. Exactly. Um, one of the other elements that we saw was that the government awarded the data storage contract to Amazon, which is a US-based company, um, and people had raised some concerns about that, um, given that Amazon is a really uh, a large company, and also that um, if, it's over, if our data is being stored offshore, whether our data would be uh, really under the law of um, US guidelines and US regulations in regards to privacy and data storage. And the US obviously would have a very different approach to other countries, um, quite a notoriously different approach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, would have a different approach. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the jury's out really on this stuff. Um, and, and I think it also highlights the trust deficit of, the, of, you know, governments worldwide, which is that, you know, we know they've been spying on us. Um, in fact, they've told us that they're spying on us and there's laws that allow them to spy on us. Uh, and so, you know, people who are aware of this, you know, are understandably, I think, um, a little bit wary of, of what the potential misuse of this data could be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was interesting to see that there's been some polling out, and of course, it's not scientific at all, but it was interesting to see, I guess, the general response and sentiment towards the government. And um, it was really, really intriguing to see that uh, a month ago, voters said the management of the pandemic response from the government had been quite good or very good, and that was 45%. Um, and only a month later, now, 70% of voters are very much in favour and think the government has done a good or very good job. So it seems like uh, on the face of it, people think the government uh, is competent, that it's doing its job, um, that people seem to feel supported. Do you think that's a reflection of the reality and particularly thinking about some of their bigger policy responses like uh, the job keeper scheme and the job seeker uh, allowance? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it goes to show, I guess, again, that um, the government's playing catch up on a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think, you know, like in terms of welfare policy, you know, I, uh, the, the government <laughs> has... Um, you know, for, for many years, it's basically beaten up on, on people who are unemployed, on welfare benefit recipients. Uh, so it's been quite a turnaround to see the government try and uh, suddenly, you know, find a, a sort of social democracy uh, bone in its body. Um, and, of course, then there's the implementation issues. So a whole bunch of people were meant to be starting to receive their COVID supplement uh, yesterday, um, we think that that hasn't quite happened yet. You know, there's a further hold up in the Centrelink machinery. Mm. Um, and there's also big issues around the design of the JobKeeper stimulus payment that's really got a whole bunch of businesses worried about how they're going to actually do it. 
Um, so there's big implementation issues with the government's rollout of its stimulus packages. There is, and we did. I did see some people um, talking about the the fact that they're on youth allowance, for example, um, which means that they're a full time student, uh, and they they should have just, I guess, automatically been given that increase because that's really all they need to be on. Um, they don't need to report uh, an income to prove that they need it um, on that on the same level that a job seeker uh, needs to do. And they still said that 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 it the Centrelink website or their system had not updated to give them that payment on the day that it was supposed to occur, which was, of course, yesterday, April 27. So uh, it does have real-world consequences for those people who are very much waiting on this financial support. Um, we saw those lines around the blocks outside Centrelink offices not even that long ago. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, this is the first time when people are going to get a substantial payment. Um, obviously, we had a one-off payment earlier for select groups of people, but it seems to be that the government, um, you know, isn't necessarily all on the, the kind of like bureaucratic process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and the minister in charge, Stuart Robert, is not widely considered to be one of the government's better performers. And it's an area in which the government has been systematically underfunding the services provision there for years. Uh, you know, Centrelink is a notorious bureaucratic maze where it's very difficult for welfare recipients to actually access services and where, you know, many, many millions of calls go unanswered every year. So um, I think we're just at the beginning of this. I mean, the government has done much better than a lot of people thought it would do. Uh, it's poured some extra resources into Centrelink and some people have received some benefits already. Um, but you know, we're just at the beginning of the recession that's been caused by COVID-19. And I think there's a, a long road to go here. Exactly. Um, the government has been, sorry, not the government, the Guardian, very different things. The Guardian has been doing <laughs> some case studies on the job keeper um, scheme. And they were talking to some small businesses like a cafe, which um, is on Ligon Street, and they had 11 casuals who were eligible for the job keeper scheme, but they said they would have to pay those uh, employees for in advance, of course, for the first month, um, which for them was $48,000 before it was reimbursed by the government. And they said they don't have the cash flow to do it without a loan. Um, and the loan that they were offered by their bank um, was at 12% interest. So essentially, they've decided that they can't actually afford to take part in a JobKeeper scheme. What do you think of things like that, where it seems like there is kind of a really essential flaw for some of these small small businesses that are essentially relying on um, foot traffic a lot of the time to uh, keep their cash flow moving and who really can't afford to keep all of their um, employees employed. Yeah, I think this is a sleeper issue and it's going to get bigger and bigger. There are huge flaws in the design of JobKeeper. Um, instead of going for a much simpler plan where the government could have just guaranteed a percentage of people's wages, instead they designed a particularly complex system that they called JobKeeper. And you're right, it's paid in, 
in um, it's not paid in advance. It relies on the, the businesses to pay their wages and then you get reimbursed by the government after you've paid the wages and that could be a month or more. Now, most small businesses simply don't have the working capital to fund that kind of thing. Um, there's no way that a, a business that's already had its revenue drop by at least 30% to be eligible for JobKeeper is going to be able to afford to pay all of its staff $1,500 each for a month in advance. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of businesses that have already gone under that won't be paying anything because they simply shut already. Mm. And then JobKeeper is also not eligible for things like the university sector, which have got major, major issues and where there's uh, perhaps 21,000 jobs at risk, um, but where the government has moved to specifically rule the universities out of being eligible for JobKeeper. So I think that um, JobKeeper is not going to be nearly as effective as many economists think it will be. And I actually think it's not going to protect as many jobs as the government believes it will. Yeah, and um, there was a, an article a day ago saying um, that Latrobe thought that perhaps um, the 15% uh, revenue downturn threshold would apply to them because it applies to registered charities. Uh, however, the government clarified that universities were subject to the standard tests of 30 or 50% revenue downturn. Um, therefore, Latrobe, who did apply, have been knocked back. So there's just one example um, of how things are changing and that a number of those in insecure work at universities, which is a lot of people, um, because, of course, they rely on casual academic teaching staff in great numbers. Um, yeah, it's certainly putting, making a lot of people nervous. Well, people in the university sector are gobsmacked at the government's lack of concern for Australia's third largest export sector. It's hard to believe the government would be taking this approach if we were talking about iron ore or coal. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, the, the impact of, of the coronavirus pandemic on the university sector is major. In the last week, we've seen a string of big universities issue revenue downgrades. UNSW said they'd lost $600 million. <clears throat> Monash has said they've lost $350 million. Um, Latrobe has said they've lost $90 million. Swinburne, $70 million. So this, this is money that has disappeared from the bottom line of these universities. They're going to have to make it up somehow. The government's refused to do a bailout. So it's pretty obvious what's going to happen next is that a bunch of people are going to be let go. Uh, and for the government then to turn around and to specifically rule universities ineligible, you know, like the, Josh Frydenberg has basically changed the rules to make sure uh, that the universities will not be able to access JobKeeper. I think a lot of people are astounded at that. Well, is this a cost-saving measure? Are they basically thinking we can't afford it? I believe it's ideological, Amy. I think this government has a score to settle with universities. It sees them as its ideological enemies. Uh, it sees them as nurturers of left-leaning, uh, left-wing thinking amongst our young people. And, and so um, there's a view within particularly the right wing of the Liberal Party that this is what the universities deserve. It's pretty astounding, isn't it? got to say. Um, one of the other issues that uh, has arisen in recent days and is um, it does involve China is the discussion or the push to have a, a thorough 
transparent investigation into the, I guess, source of COVID-19 and how this all came about. And uh, the implication is that China needs to be transparent. And we've seen a number of uh, government ministers and even the opposition echo these sentiments. And then we saw over the weekend uh, Australia's um, Chinese ambassador here say that or basically hint that if if this kind of um, angle kept on being pushed, that there would be or could be a consumer boycott of Australian products like beef, for example, and also uh, Australian wine. What are your thoughts on these growing tensions and escalation and, and essentially that we've got a bit of a bipartisan ticket on this one? Yeah, it's a concern. Um, the government's played pretty fast and loose when it comes to the pandemic politics of China. Um, I think it's pretty silly to blame this on China, um, even though we can agree that there was an initial cover-up in Wuhan. Uh, China moved pretty quickly once they realised how bad the, the pandemic was to actually do a lot of public health measures, and they were pretty transparent from about mid-January onwards. Um you know, if you can you contrast the, the performance of the Chinese government with the U.S. government in this pandemic, I think, you know, you could argue that, that there's many more concerns about the U.S. response to this than to China's. But um, for, I think, political reasons, the government's decided to jump on the sort of investigation bandwagon. Um, I don't know if that is the smartest politics uh, internationally. Domestically, of course, it plays well, but it certainly angered the Chinese ambassador who came out yesterday with a very strong statement, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, this is part of a ratcheting up of tensions with China. It's not helpful to our relationship with China. It's certainly not helpful to our business relationship with China, um, but I think it does show just how tense the situation is. Yeah, there and there is this kind of ideological um, tension and a constant highlight of the difference between Australia and China. And it has also meant that there's been a lot of uh, racism, particularly overt racism and harassment against Asian Australians. And uh, we did see the um, Prime Minister say that racism, you know, shouldn't happen and it's not okay. But I f it seems like what he said was a pretty lukewarm reaction. It didn't seem like uh, he had a really strong condemnation of the types of things we've been seeing, which is, you know, graffiti on people's homes with very much abusive and threatening uh, words, people on the street being yelled at and harassed and told to go back to China. You know, these things which seem to have been even more stoked by uh, Donald Trump's remarks and people taking their cue from him. It seems like we need to look to our leaders and actually see something more than just, oh, well, Australians should know better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's right, Amy. Um, you know, I, th I think we need to do better here and we need to have a more considered approach. Um, you know, um, th this, is a, this is a pandemics are an international problem. You know, this one came from China. Others have emerged in, in the United States. You know, a, a dangerous virus emerged in Australia in 1994, the Hendra virus. You know, um, so I don't think we've got any grounds to, to try to stand on xenophobia on, on this issue. Um, viruses are international. They're a problem that confronts all of humanity. And the best way to respond to them would be to fund international health efforts like the WHO. 
Exactly. Um, ben, just finally, we saw overnight that the New South Wales Police have announced that they found no evidence that the document Angus Taylor's office used to attack City of Sydney Lord Mayor Clovermore ever existed on the council's website. They don't know where this document actually came from, but there's <laughs> no evidence it was on that website that it was claimed to have been on. This is um, an ongoing saga, but it seems like we're never really going to get to the bottom of it. No, we're probably not, I don't think. Look, this is one of those issues that probably truly is a sort of camera inside bubble kind of issue. Um I don't think many ordinary people really care about whether Angus Taylor forged uh, a document showing that Clover Moore had, you know, done a bunch of international travel or not. It, it certainly was a bad look for Taylor, and he has apologised for it, and a staffer in his office has admitted uh, some role in it, although what role it is we're not exactly sure. Uh, you know, should federal ministers be doing this kind of thing? Of course they shouldn't, but I think it would be... Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone's going to pursue this particularly from here. Exactly. Um, it does also remind you, though, that uh, politics is a dirty game. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Taylor is uh, absolutely no stranger to dirty politics. Um, he it's, it's amazing, really, that he's retained his portfolio because he's one of the most accident-prone ministers in the government, uh, he's a deeply ambitious fellow, Angus Taylor, and he's got a, a pretty hard ideological agenda. He's very anti-renewables. As the COVID crisis starts to wane, I think, and people start to have more, you know, to start paying attention to federal politics again and start looking at policy issues like energy, the heat will come back on to Taylor. Um, and Australia's performance when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions is very poor. And he's the guy responsible. So I don't think this is, uh, there's not, you know, Angus Taylor's problems are not going away. <laughs> That's the case for so many other government ministers. It'll be uh, interesting to watch how this all unfolds, particularly at the Select Committee, and if anything interesting is unearthed. And it's great at least that there is some level of parliamentary scrutiny, given that Parliament is not sitting. Um, but yeah, it will be very, very interesting. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you know, they keep something. saying Parliament's not sitting, but they keep coming back to sit. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it would be good that they have some scrutiny and, and hopefully they can probe some of the worst aspects of JobKeeper, for instance. Exactly. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today about federal politics and I hope you have a, a great week at home. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. You too. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now into my next chat, and I'm really, really excited that I finally get to speak with Dr. Alessandro Antonello, who is a, re a senior research fellow at Flinders University. He is a historian and he's written uh, a book which came out last year through Oxford University Press called The Greening of Antarctica and uh, Assembling an International Environment is the subtitle. And also Antonello, um, Alessandro Antonello has written an article um, for Inside Story which is uh, really interesting and a great way to get into this issue of the effects of climate change 
in Antarctica and it's called Another Ferocious Summer. So I'd love to welcome now to the show Dr. Alessandro Antonello and thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Amy. It's Good really, to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you in all the way from South Australia. <laughs> uh, I wish it was sunnier here, <laughs> but I'm stuck inside, of course. I, absolutely. Um, I, I, did, I have been following you on Twitter and I noticed that you were at Melbourne University for a, a little while um, there and I often have Emma Shortus on my program to talk about American politics and I wonder whether you ever had anything to do with Emma. Uh, yes, uh, Emma wrote a fantastic PhD at the University of Melbourne on the history of Antarctica too, and I was um, a, a latecomer, but I was very happy to help um, in supervising her, um, though of course she's such a brilliant historian, she didn't need much supervising. <laughs> she's very, very self-motivated and a fantastic part of this show, so it's great to hear that uh, we've got two fantastic historians associated with this show. And uh, I did notice on your bio that you were awarded a DECRA um, fellowship, which is a really um, important thing for anyone who is in academia. But for those of us who don't know, what um, is the DECRA fellowship and why were you awarded it? The Australian Research Council uh, has a system of fellowships and grants that it awards to Australian university academics. Um, and there are three different fellowships for different stages of academic careers. So DECRA stands for, um, sort of very unlovely way, Discovery Early Career Researcher Award. Um, and so I'm an early career historian, a researcher. I got my PhD in 2014. And these awards are awards of fellowships are uh, designed to give young researchers uh, uh, three years of um, time to do their research on a specific topic. Uh, my my research project for the DECRA is moving away a bit from Antarctica, uh, which I've been working on for about ten years now, um, to a similar and overlapping questions relating to the history of ocean governance uh, across the world since the end of the Second World War. So it takes in similar issues about how uh, we think about environments, how scientists think about environments and work on them, and how those ideas um, and knowledge about the environment translate into uh, international relations, international diplomacy, how treaties participate in that knowledge in really interesting ways. And so that's, I've done a lot of work now, that's basically what my book is about to some extent um, uh, for Antarctica. And that's, and so I'm really interested in oceans at the global scale um, in that area. Indeed. Well, it is very relevant, isn't it, to Antarctica? Because I, when I was reading through um, your book, The Greening of Antarctica, something um, stood out to me, which I just wanted to ask about before we delve into some of the complexity. And um, it probably is a good opening for this area because Antarctica, as we all know, is kind of a special place because it's not like there's a kind of government with a population of people. It's, um, you know, a very remote place and it's a highly contested environment and has been for a number of decades. And um, the 20th century was obviously a pivotal point for Antarctica. But in your book, you kind of look through and, and um, take us through the different treaties that were negotiated. And of course, um, one of the, the most important ones was the Antarctic Treaty in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it was interesting to note that 
I'm not sure if it was that treaty or another, so I'd be interested if you can correct me, um, that when the treaty was devised, it, it applied to land but not to sea. Certainly. So the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed in 1959, uh, does actually only apply to land and not the high seas. Uh, there's a lot of, I mean, thankfully I'm not a lawyer, so I'll try <laughs> not to get too much into the finicky details. Um, but the high seas have uh, historically over centuries been sort of lawless places, places where um you know, pirates, but also like, uh, you know, where empires can sail their ships, where merchants can sail their ships without um, being under the jurisdiction of, of a government or, a you know, a, a monarch uh, for the early modern period. And so this idea of the high seas is, uh, is centuries old and was, uh, you know, was carried into the Antarctic Treaty um, as a way of protecting rights. Um, there is a bit of geopolitics around that because, in the 50s, countries like the United States and the Soviet Union, um, they, they have a very big interest in maintaining the freedom of the high seas because they have massive globe-spanning navies and they want to be able to go everywhere. Whereas smaller countries like Australia have a bit more of an interest in perhaps um, bringing law to parts of the ocean that were previously lawless. And in fact, I mean, not to get too, too distracted, but um, at, at this very moment, despite the pandemic, um, there is a major uh, effort in international diplomacy right now to negotiate a treaty for protection of biodiversity in the high seas. And that would be a really massive um, achievement of international law to bring much more law, basically, to what have previously been lawless spaces. Yeah, and the ocean is not just a kind of massive body of water. This is an essential um, part of the world and a really important ecosystem full of uh, amazing animals, fish, and um, of course, some beautiful mammals and seals and penguins and um, polar bears who, mm -hmm. you know, you obviously utilise the ocean um, to to a very important extent in this area. And also the ocean um, is becoming more and more, uh, I guess, voluminous given that the ice uh, glaciers over there have been melting at increasing rates. So it's it's interesting and kind of really surprising to think that no one thought the ocean around the land wouldn't count. <laughs> It's really important as well to remember that the Antarctic is not just a continent of ice. It's, mm. it's a whole region that takes in the Southern Ocean. I mean, the Southern Ocean gets its identity. Um, you know, this is the, the problem is we talk about the Southern Ocean in Australia as being all the water south of Australia. But um, in sort of scientific oceanographical terms, the Southern Ocean is the cold ocean that completely surrounds the Antarctic continent. And it's much colder than uh, oceans to the north. Uh, and it, it, it's part of the, the whole system of Antarctica. Um, and we need to look to the ocean actually to get uh, details about, for example, uh, how the warming of the ocean is affecting um, the ice sheet, for example. It's not just increasing air temperature, it's increasing ocean temperature. And also it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a highly interconnected system and we have to look at it that way. Exactly. Um, and it was interesting to read your piece in Inside Story um, to hear about the different, I guess, access points of Antarctica, because there are um, a number of countries that are located 
I guess, relatively close to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you re- reference there the Argentine Antarctic station Esperanza, um, which you say recorded a temperature of 18.3 degrees on the 6th of February in 2020. Um, that's like pretty balmy for Melbourne sometimes. <laughs> yes, and I mean, it's pretty balmy for the Antarctic. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important... Obviously, Antarctica is a cold place, but it is important to remind people that in summer, in the height of summer, even though temperatures can remain low in the full sunlight, you know, you do need to take off your jumper in Antarctica if you're doing hard work in summer. (laughs) Um, uh, The Antarctic Peninsula uh, is often called the banana belt of Antarctica, which is sort of a, a lovely term to remind people that it's relatively warmer than the rest of Antarctica. Uh, it stretches uh, well above the Antarctic Circle uh, towards South America. And it's sort of marine climate uh, means that uh, it can remain a bit warmer. So undoubtedly, the 18 degrees at um, Esperanza and I think it was 20 degrees a few days later at Marambio, uh, you know, those are undoubtedly very warm. And, you know, they're obviously record setting temperatures, um, which is com- absolutely worrying. Um but they do differ. Um, it's important as well to remember that Antarctica is regionally differentiated. I think we can often see it as just one big blob of ice at the bottom of the world. But it's actually a very, it's a very complex region. Um, it's geologically complex. So the Antarctic Peninsula is very mountainous, uh, whereas uh, the area of Antarctica south of Australia, for example, is the largest part of Antarctica, East Antarctica, and it's, you know, the bulk of the ice sheet. It's far less mountainous. It's much, much colder. Uh, The winds are much stronger. Um, So it's important to remember how Antarctica is differentiated. Exactly. Yeah. Some, I'm sure a lot of us would, when we picture it in our minds and perhaps we're not fortunate enough to have visited, um, would just think, oh, you know, lots of ice, mm-hmm. lots of cute animals. Um, yeah. But there, there must be a huge amount of diversity given that temperature difference that you're describing. Um, and it is a really large area. Could you kind of put it into context for us in terms of how substantial the continent of Antarctica is? Uh, That's a very good question. Um, I think one way of sort of thinking about Antarctica is not just as a two-dimensional continent, which of course it is. I mean, I think it's fourth or fifth largest, so I don't have the exact number in my head. Fifth. Um, Oh, fifth, exactly. So it's, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a continent. So I mean, that's the, that's very important to emphasize. But I think it's also really important to emphasize the size of Antarctica as a in three dimensions. So in fact, um, the Antarctic ice sheet is the largest uh, body of ice in the world, it contains about uh, 90% of the world's ice. And its average thickness is two kilometers. Its wow. thickest point is over four kilometres. I mean, so this is, uh, a, you know, a massively thick body of ice. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not it's not icing on the cake. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's so, the, the ice sheet is so large that it actually, and it's therefore so heavy, that it actually depresses the land underneath it. So there is continental bedrock underneath, obviously, Um but that is, in fact, uh, at its deepest point is, you know, well under, uh, a very, very far under current sea level. And um, the other thing to think about the geography, the physical geography of Antarctica, 
is to go back again to what I said about its sort of three uh, its regions. So there, um, geographers and scientists often speak of Antarctica in terms of three main big regions: East Antarctica, so that's the area as I mentioned to the south of Australia, uh, West Antarctica. And the peninsula. Um, West Antarctica is really uh, perhaps the most uh, dynamic and interesting part of the continent at the moment because the ice sheet, the Antarctic, the part of the Antarctic ice sheet that covers East Antarctica is what is known as marine grounded. And so that means that the ice meets uh, the ocean. Uh, sorry, that where the ice meets the bedrock is below sea level, which means that a warming sea can slowly undermine uh, the ice sheet at its foundations, whereas in <clears throat> excuse me, whereas in East Antarctica, most of uh, the East Antarctic ice sheet is grounded above sea level. Um, and when you look at, um, you know, if you go, people can search online for these images. Uh, when you look at the bedrock topography of Antarctica, you can see how, um, you know, there are massive mountain ranges underneath the East Antarctic ice sheet and under the West Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, you know, a very, very deep uh, submarine canyon kind of things. Um, so it's really, yeah, it's really important to see um, not just a 2D, but a really deep 3D continent. Indeed. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the different elements. Um, and you also reference it in your article when you were talking about uh, a glacier in the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, called the Thwaites Glacier, and um, you talk about this thing called a grounding line, um, which is the place where glacial ice meets continental rock. Um, and it's, as you say, you've just mentioned there that um, it's so sensitive to water temperature. Um, and you talk about the fact that if it were to fully melt, that uh, West Antarctic ice sheet would add three to six metres to global sea levels, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around. Um, but you did talk about the fact that you've gone over there yourself, um, no doubt for research and perhaps for pleasure, Um but yeah, I was interested in you and your experience going to the different parts of Antarctica that you reference in your article, um, particularly an example like when you're talking about Hope Bay, um, which is a, an Antarctic hotspot that's been in the news. And um, whether you, what your kind of experience was of that and whether the kind of significant concerns and, alarm that's, and alarms that have been raised um, around that area are warranted in terms of uh, global warming. Certainly. Well, I'll first talk about the Thwaites Glacier just to give a yeah. bit of background on that. Um, so I haven't been to Th the Thwaites Glacier. And in fact, um, there's a really interest. I mean, there's a really his interesting history here with um, that particular area of West Antarctica. Um, so West Ant the West Antarctic ice sheet contains as much ice as the Greenland ice sheet, um, to put that in perspective. And um, that area where the Thwaites Glacier is is actually part of the area, the only part of Antarctica which hasn't had a territorial claim made over it. And we can get back to that a bit later. Mm. Um, partially because it's a very, very inaccessible area. It's a very difficult area to access in Antarctica. Very difficult. Um, it's very, very far from um, major any major continental landmass, um, which also means that there's not been much research done on it or comparatively um, over the you know many decades, there's been less research. That's changed in recent 
in the last decade because people have seen uh, the potential danger of these marine grounded glaciers, so Thwaites, the Pine Island Glacier, which is next to it and which flow into the Amundsen Sea. And so, you know, as a historian who studied the history of glaciology, it was actually wonderful to learn that these scientists finally had these um, video images of the grounding line. But as I mentioned in the article, I couldn't watch it because I was on a ship with fairly poor internet connectivity. <laughs> um, that ship, so it wasn't, so to get to the second part of your question, um, uh, this summer was in fact my first trip to Antarctica, which was a great um, sort of great professional moment for me as well as a wonderful uh uh, moment in my life. You know, as a historian, I have, um, I rely on archives, which are held all around the world, but aren't held in Antarctica. And in fact, my research has been interested in how people who haven't even been to Antarctica manage and make decisions about it. Mm. So, But thankfully, you know, it was really wonderful to be able to have the opportunity to go there. And it was, it was tied to my work. Um, tangentially but tied because I was asked by the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators to be an observer on a tourist ship. So that organisation, which goes by its acronym IATO, um, is, is a, a, a member-based organisation and most companies that send tourist vessels to Antarctica are members of this organisation. And IATO um, builds upon the regulations passed within the Antarctic Treaty system, um, they build upon it to make a framework to ensure that tour, uh, tourist cruises in Antarctica are safe, which is really important in such a dangerous environment, and that they're environmentally uh, sensitive, that they, uh, that they are not contributing to environmental damage in Antarctica, which is uh, it might seem that you can't harm a block of ice, but, you know, it's a very fragile eco ecosystem and human impacts are very can be very substantial. So I was on a, a large tourist ship, and um, it also just by chance happened to be my birthday a few days after, so I couldn't say no to being in Antarctica on my birthday. <laughs> and um, uh, most tourist ships uh, only visit the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, which I mentioned as the banana belt. They can visit mm. it because it's relatively ice-free in summer and increasingly ice-free in summer. Um, there's a bit more land that uh, tourists can actually land on, um, whereas in East Antarctica, for example, the coast is, can be fundamentally inaccessible, um, even if you could get to it past the sea ice, whereas in summer in the Antarctic Peninsula, there's not as much sea ice. Interestingly, um, I was told by uh, some of the senior officers on the ship that um, they would normally not expect to be able to get into Hope Bay so it was very lucky that a ship of our size could enter Hope Bay, but sad because it basically required Hope Bay to be essentially ice-free when it should have at least a bit of ice in it. Um, there were various reasons for that that weren't just climate change. Um, there was a very massive iceberg blocking the entrance to the channel, which would otherwise um, be filled with large icebergs. So we were very lucky in that sense. Um, uh, lucky in a in an unlucky way, mm. but um, as I say at the opening of that piece, it was also just fantastic from a historian's point of view, not just sort of a, a naturalist's point of view, because Hope Bay is a fascinating site of Antarctic history. Uh, there was briefly a British base there, um, 
after the end of the Second World War, and uh, it's currently the site of uh, an Argentine station. Esperanza is the Spanish word for hope. And um, there was, in fact, a shooting, a, a small shooting um, between Argentine and British sailors in 1952 because Britain and Argentina and, in addition, Chile um, claim the same plot of territory in Antarctica and so therefore have this territorial conflict which on, on only this one occasion led to gunfire. So it was really wonderful to be there in this very historic place. Mm. And so given, I guess, how... Um inhospitable parts of Antarctica are, does that mean that there aren't, I guess, many people at those stations during the kind of depths of winter um, that, you know, have the coldest climates of the year? Yes, it's, this has really changed over history, as you might imagine, because of things like just, you know, technological developments and remote sensing means mm. that fewer people are needed at these bases over winter. It's really worth emphasising, actually, that um, the Antarctic Peninsula has the densest coverage of scientific stations in Antarctica. Um, you know, the uncharitable way of looking at it is that um, countries can build a base in the Antarctic Peninsula on the cheap and therefore gain entry um, as voting members of the Antarctic Treaty System. Mm. Um, so it's a, uh, there are, you know, Argentina, Chile and Britain to begin with have stations in the peninsula, but countries like Poland, Brazil, Peru, uh, Korea, um, China, South Korea rather, China, um, several others uh, have bases um, in this very area, you know, in this, in this sort of the, on the peninsula itself and the sort of archipelago of islands around it. Indeed. And so... Oh, go ahead. No, keep going. It's all good. Was, you know, so in summer, it's relatively easy to access. Not all of the bases in the peninsula are year-round. Um, so this differs to, let's say, East Antarctica, you know, much more difficult, much larger area. Um, Australia is one of only very few countries that have bases in Antarctica. I'm uh, sorry, East Antarctica. Um, you know, much colder environment, all of these things. Um, and so... Um, Overwinter, for example, overwintering used to be a much bigger deal. It still is a very big deal, but spending your, win your winter during the long single night um, in Antarctica, um, not many not many scientists do that anymore. It's mostly the tradespeople that are necessary to maintain the stations, to maintain the instruments that are, you know, linked into satellites sending data back so someone doesn't need to be there to collect the data. Mm. Um, I was interested that Australia has three permanent uh, bases or stations over in Antarctica because the most, I guess, visible or famous of the three that I'm aware of is Casey Station. Um, where is Casey Station located? Is that in East Antarctica? Yeah, so all um, of Australia's three continental bases are in what Australia claims as the Australian Antarctic Territory, which covers most of East Antarctica. So the three stations are Mawson Station, uh, Davis Station and Casey Station. Mawson was the first. Uh, it's it's very far to the west of Western Australia. So really at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Uh, it was established in 1954. So that was the first base. And, it, and it's uh, the oldest continuously operating scientific station south of the Antarctic Circle. So that's what the Antarctic Division tells us. Mm. Um, Davis was opened in 1957, um, and Casey 
Casey technically opened in 1969, but it was really a, a replacement station from a nearby station called Wilkes, which Australia inherited or took over from the United States in 1959. Um, Casey is, uh, I'm probably going to get my geography mixed up. Casey is in the Vestfold Hills. Again, it's sort of to the south of Australia is sort of the generic way of putting it, but that's a big space. Um, and as I said, M- Mawson is far to the west and uh, Davis is in the middle. That's so fascinating to hear. Um, And I was really interested then in bringing in perhaps the Antarctic Treaty system, um, because I guess that is very relevant for the discussion we're having around territory and the different countries that kind of claim territory in the Antarctic and what that really means in effect. So when that treaty was signed, um, I believe it was on December the 1st, 1959, um, you write that 12 nations were signatories to that Antarctic treaty. Um, What is the status of that treaty now? How has that, it's probably a very big question, but um, in terms of the most important elements, how has that evolved well, the treaty is still in operation. Uh, it was negotiated to be a, you know, it, w- it wasn't negotiated just to be a short-term agreement. There was some hope that it would be a, a long-term agreement. So, yes, uh, it was the 60th anniversary last December um, of the signing, and it came into force in 1961. Uh, the 12 original signatories are an interesting bunch, uh, Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, the Soviet Union, South Africa, Britain, and the United States. So this is a a motley crew of countries. Seven of those countries actually claim territory in Antarctica. So I've mentioned Australia already, and I've mentioned that Britain, Argentina, and Chile make claims in the Antarctic Peninsula which overlap. And the other three are um, France, which makes a very thin, tiny, thin little claim which actually sits in the middle of Australia's claim. Uh, New Zealand makes a claim um, to the Ross Sea area, which is to the south of New Zealand. And Norway makes a territorial claim, which is to the west of Australia's claim. Now, those claims exist, I mean, kind of for classic reasons, because of imperialism. Um, You know, the kind of, you know, if there's any piece of land in the world, an empire or someone has tried to claim it. And so in the first half of the 20th century, um, starting with Britain uh, in 1908 or so, um, you know, there were these successive claims to these wedges of territory in Antarctica. Remembering, I suppose I should tell people that um, really the first um, person to step on the continent was um, only at the end of the 19th century. So, um, and certainly in East Antarctica, uh, there were, you know, there was this burst of um, expeditions in the very early 20th century. So these claims only come to be in the early 20th century because that's actually only when exploration begins in Antarctica, on Antarctica. I mean, there have been lots of uh, ships and sealers and uh, around the continent until then. And so the treaty, yes, the treaty still exists. And um, the treaty has a, just a few essential points, which is really easy to recite. Um, it, it, uh, it ensures that Antarctica should only be used for peaceful purposes it states that there should be freedom of scientific research. It states that there should um, Antarctica should not have military activities and shouldn't have nuclear explosions or the disposal of nuclear waste. 
And to sort of guarantee all of this, it creates, uh, it created rather, it created a, a system of meetings by which um, signatories to the treaty would come together regularly to make decisions about uh, Antarctic governance, whether about science or other matters. Um, and there's actually um, a very complex and novel um, uh, article about territorial sovereignty. So... These seven countries claim territory, but actually almost no one recognises these territories. So there's a um, there's a very difficult position that a country like Australia is in. It believes it claims territory in Antarctica, but no one recognises it. <laughs> and in fact, the, the Soviet Union in the 1950s um, was simply, you know, establishing bases on territory that Australia claimed as its own without asking permission. And so um, under the treaty, there's this article, Article 4, which creates this system, a kind of legal guarantee that during the treaty's existence, um, it will freeze sovereignty claims. So um, countries can't do anything to improve their sovereignty claims and countries can't do anything to reject or um, counteract those sovereignty claims. So it's this kind of um, uh, working ambiguity that says okay, you can keep claiming your territory, but it doesn't really matter. And okay, you can keep ignoring those claims, but it doesn't really matter. But we're really all working together for Antarctica. And why do you think that was built into the treaty? Was there a huge amount of um, conflict over, you know, who has what? I mean, yes, I think the treaty wouldn't exist if this kind of territorial ambiguity wasn't created. Um, Australia, for example, would absolutely not have signed the Antarctic Treaty without a kind of guaranteed recognition of its um, ambiguous recognition of its territorial claim and building a sort of framework to make sure that other countries couldn't counteract the claim. So it's really, I mean, this is, I need to remind people that the 1950s is absolutely the height of the early Cold War, mm. you know, reds under the bed, you know, deep fears of Soviet aggression across the whole world. Um, you'll notice that the Soviet Union is the only Eastern Bloc state in those original, original signatories. Um, you know, the Minister uh, for Foreign Affairs in the 1950s was worried that the Soviets would put a submarine base in Antarctica um, to launch attacks on Australia. And so, um, you know, this, uh, you know, intensely geopolitical moment and there's some sense that, you know, this place at the bottom of the world, which really only the scientists were going to, um, well, we should leave it to the scientists and build this kind of international architecture so we don't actually fight about Antarctica. We'll just fight elsewhere, I suppose, is the cynical way of seeing it. <laughs> oh, it's probably good um, that, that Antarctica is in some ways not as heavily in dispute given um, just how fragile it is, as you say. And um, I was interested to read uh, that in 2016, the Russian Navy resumed its Antarctic expeditions after 30 years. And in uh, your article, you do reference uh, the Russians and Russia and its um, interest in Antarctica, particularly in regard to oil and gas, and uh, and not just Russia, but also China as well. And I was particularly interested to hear from you about um, their 
increasing efforts to uh, look for oil and gas and how that fits in to the legal framework that currently exists around Antarctica and, I guess, conducting those types of interventions? Sure. Well, um, especially here in Australia, but, you know, across several Western countries as well, there's increasing worry about the geopolitical movements and developments of Russia and China. And that is happening in Antarctica too. Russia, of course, is uh, an original signatory as the Soviet Union. And uh, Russia does have an interesting Antarctic history, but an uneven one. Uh, I mentioned in that article that actually this is the, uh, I was in Antarctica uh, for the 200th anniversary of the first sighting of the continent by uh, a Russian admiral, Bellingshausen, uh, sort of Prussian, Estonian, Russian, sort of complex sort of early 19th century European history there. But, um, you know, he, on behalf of the Russian Empire, was uh, was circumnavigating the globe and was the first to see the Antarctic continent. And he beat a British uh, admiral, uh, a British sailor by a few days. Hmm. So actually, it's a really rich moment in which uh, Russia is... Um, uh, as part of its general, you know, global geopolitical posture, which is, you know, I, I put it as mischief making, but of course, it's a bit more than mischief making. Um, it you know, often is very appears proud, is very proud to claim that Bellingshausen, a Russian, was the first to see Antarctica, and yeah. they used that actually. They used that fact in the late 1940s to insist that the US and its allies couldn't make uh, a separate agreement without Russia, without the Soviet Union for Antarctica. So it's really used that historic memory as a wedge at several occasions. The news about um, the Russian state geological agency searching, uh, exploring for oil and gas was a really interesting one. Um, it's probably undoubted that several countries have been uh, exploring for oil and gas uh, in the Antarctic continental shelf for years. The issue is that they announced it. Um, so uh, mining is banned in Antarctica under the terms of the 1991 Madrid Protocol. So this uh, the, uh, this was negotiated um, uh, by well, it was pushed for after Bob Hawke, the Prime Minister of Australia, and the Prime Minister of France rejected in the late 80s a a convention which would have regulated mining in Antarctica. Um, and actually, you mentioned Emma Shortus at the beginning of the episode, and Emma's PhD, fantastic work, was on the negotiation campaign to protect Antarctica. So mining is banned is basically the, the simple point here. Um, and in economic terms, mining, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, oil, oil and gas drilling in Antarctica is surely decades off or perhaps even will never happen. So the fact is that m my interpretation is the fact that uh, Russia decided to announce that they were doing it. Russia's in a slightly different position, and I'll get to China now, in that Russia makes these big claims but actually has is not putting resources into its Antarctic efforts. Or, you know, their bases are de somewhat decrepit. Um, there is good work being done by Russian scientists, but, you know, it's very hard for them to be working at the same level as US or British or Australian scientists. China, on the other hand, has a lot of money and is willing to put uh, quite a bit of resources into its global scientific research efforts. At the end of last year, it launched its second icebreaker, the Snow Dragon 2. Um, it is, uh, over the last few years, it's been operating uh, a base in the middle of the East Antarctic ice sheet. Um, 
And, you know, and there's even there was a report released yesterday by the Strategic Policy Institute here in Australia, you know, thinking about the rise of China in relation to Antarctica. And so um, China signed the treaty in the early 1980s. Uh, and in fact, Australia was very welcoming of Chinese scientists in the early 1980s and late 1970s. Um, bringing them on the Australian expeditions, helping them do their glaciological and other research. But really, the, the, the issue with China has changed dramatically in the last few years with the rise of Xi Jinping and the much more sort of forthright position of China on the world stage. Um, the question at the moment is, will China participate in good faith in maintaining the Antarctic Treaty system as it exists? which is a really big question and it's hard to predict. Um, in another part um, of the Antarctic Treaty System, um, in a part known as the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, um, China has been a bit of a break on progress for marine conservation and for stricter controls on fisheries in the Southern Ocean. I mean, this all just builds a bigger picture in which, um, you know, especially here in Australia, I would say actually, it's very um, intense here in Australia. There is concern about China's position in Antarctica. Well, it's um, interesting because it kind of directly relates to uh, Australian Antarctic Territory, but I saw there was a development where Beijing, um, the CCP, the Chinese government, had put in a proposal to make a Dome A, which was a specially managed area within Australia's Antarctic Territory, what is that Dome A and what, why is China proposing that? Yeah, that's a really interesting case. Um, so Dome A is, a very, uh, is one of the peaks uh, or one of the highest points of the East Antarctic ice sheet. So there's a, quite a lot of ice below it. So it's actually a really good place to potentially do ice core drilling. Um, so, you know, it's a very elevated point of the East Antarctic ice sheet. It's, it's, it's you know, hundreds of kilometres inland. So it's a very difficult site to get to. Um, so China's been operating there uh, for a few years. Um, uh, the, the specially managed area that you mention, so within the Antarctic Treaty, there's this sort of a system of area protection. Um, there are specially protected areas and there are specially managed areas. And these exist for various purposes. The specially protected areas exist, for example, to protect um, animal communities, you know, bird colonies, uh, um, seal, co you know, seal hauling up points. Um, and so they exist mostly to protect animals and to manage access to study sites, for example. Specially managed areas uh, often take in much larger areas and usually have several um, Antarctic Treaty parties as the lead managers. Um, one example is the dry valleys. So in, um, in the area south of New Zealand, there's this really interesting part of the continent which doesn't have ice on it. It's deglaciated and they're called the dry valleys. And they, they are jointly managed by uh, several countries because lots of scientists study the area. And so it's really about managing access, making sure there's not excessive pollution, excessive impacts, and to make sure science can be done harmoniously. Uh, the asthma that China was proposing was China only. So that was sort of seen by the other treaty parties as a kind of unusual step. You know, why create this specially managed area, which is only one country? Um, there doesn't seem to be a need for such a specially managed area if you don't, if you're controlling the only people there. 
Um, it was seen, it's, it has been interpreted in Australia um, as a kind of offensive gesture against the Australian Antarctic Territory. But of course, China doesn't recognise the Australian Antarctic Territory and, you know, I'll eat my hat if it ever does. <laughs> um, and so some commentators, I think, have been seeing this as a much more offensive gesture than it is. I think the the, the gesture is really about testing the Antarctic Treaty system, not about testing Australia. Mm. It's about saying, will this system, which is, as you know, until it's still essentially a white man system. I mean, we can get into the entire history of colonialism and the efforts in Antarctica as essentially dominated by the Western imperial states. But until, you know, until the 1980s, um, when India and China joined Brazil to some extent, you know, this is rich countries um, controlling Antarctica. And, you know, I don't want to peddle the Communist Party line, but there is, you know, I think there is an interesting question of global justice and access to global areas that China is making, even if it's making it in a very ham-fisted way, that um, Antarctica is part of the global commons, they would argue, and therefore the Antarctic Treaty System should better reflect the fact that there are different um, aspirations for those areas. Um, just finally, Alessandro, I wanted to ask from a personal perspective, I mean, you've spent, as you said, about a decade looking at Antarctica and that's a really huge proportion of your working life dedicated to one subject area, even though it is a huge, um, vast area, as we can tell. But I wondered, given that you finally had the chance to actually go and experience it for yourself, um, whether there was anything that kind of struck you on a personal level um, at, that kind of you hadn't really considered thinking about Antarctica so deeply at an intellectual level, was there anything at a, an experiential level when you visited that you were struck by and um, that has left a mark on you? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's obvious that actually visiting um, was a really lovely and profound experience. I mean, I was really, I mean, I sort of two responses. I was really glad to actually go on a tourist ship as my first visit. Um, it might seem a sort of strange way of saying it rather than like, joining a scientific expedition, because I try and remind people that um, the bulk of human visitors to Antarctica now are not scientists, they're not working on stations, they are tourists. And so this summer, there were 78,000 tourists, and I was one of them. And so I felt really kind of both personally, but you know, in my analytical frame, was really glad to experience it alongside people um, who are, you know, the great majority of those who experience Antarctica today. And so it was really interesting to be on, you know, a cruise to see the sort of ecosystem of, you know, the society on board a cruise ship, um, the traditions of such a ship. And, you know, it was just, it was a bit of fun, and it, but it was really instructive for the way I think about that experience. The other really lovely thing about the cruise that I was on was that it uh, allowed me to see um, – a part of Antarctica, uh, which I sort of have been slowly working on um, because I'm trying to write very slowly a biography of a krill biologist um, by the name of Mary Alice McWinney. She was uh, an American, um, 
one of the, you know, a pioneering woman in Antarctic research and in, in Antarctic history. She was the first woman to go on uh, an, Antarct an American Antarctic research cruise. She was the first woman to lead a scientific station in Antarctica. And she did this really interesting work on krill before she died, very sadly, young in the early 1980s. And in the late 1970s, she spent her career, much of it at Palmer Station, which is the US base in the Antarctic Peninsula. Now, we didn't get very close to the station, but I finally got a look at the island it was on. And I was, it kind of, I've kind of felt silly that I hadn't looked at it, tried to get a picture of it before, because I hadn't quite realized how kind of beautiful and gentle, gently rising the ice sheet behind it was, and the way it sort of loomed over this bay. So it was great to see the sort of marine environment in which she worked. Um, we didn't get to see the baby, uh, the the base because it was cut off by a little spit of land, and just to see this looming ice sheet behind it, and thankfully the su the sun came out as we were going past it, so it sort of felt, you know, beautiful sun rays through the clouds. So it was really lovely to uh, go through this area in which this um, this this great uh, uh, woman had worked in, and so that was really wonderful. Well, it's fantastic to hear that it's not just all about men, although it sounds like it has been historically dominated by um, men and, and by nations, but I'd be really fascinated to hear about that. So I'm glad to hear you're writing a book about it. Oh, I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alessandro, for taking the time to uh, delve more deeply into what is um, a very interesting and also complex topic. And uh, it's just absolutely fascinating to hear about the history of it. Um, and I do appreciate your time today. And hopefully people can read your article. Um, and if they want to understand more, they could read Emma Shortus's PhD and also your book. Indeed. It was great to join you, Amy. Thank you so much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So I'm really pleased now to welcome Kate Lever, who joins us on the phone. Hi there, Kate. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I feel like who could turn down an, an offer to talk about dogs? <laughs> so, so yeah, oh, it's like very, very much. I feel like my favourite topic. I'm probably like you, perhaps. When I was reading your chapter about your dog Bertie, um, and you just have so much love for for yeah, your dog. Yeah. I totally do. Yeah. It really does come through. Um and you know, I tend to spend a lot of time gushing about um my best friend Barney who is uh, a labrador and oh, Yeah, he's 13, so he's getting on. Um oh, Yeah, so amazing. it's Yeah, he's such a beautiful soul and I could just tell that um you just have such a a strong emotional connection with your dog and I know a number of people listening um, would also kind of have that similar feeling so I'm really glad that we get to explore that and more um, with you now. Yeah absolutely I think um, well I mean that, that's basically why I wrote the book as an excuse to just write about my favourite animal. <laughs> Seems like like the best job you could possibly set up for yourself. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it was delightful the research was excellent. 
lots of patting, good boys and good girls. Aww. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like um, let's just jump straight into your chapter about mm. um, you and your relationship with Bertie uh, and you kind of give this beautiful context and um, also the story of how your dog came into your life. And, of course, you did have um, a dog before Bertie as well who yeah. seems like um, she had a very unique personality uh, as well. So I just wanted to understand from your perspective what made you um, initially have a dog or get a dog because I think a lot of people uh, listening who don't have a dog might have complained about wanting one to their parents if they were a kid growing up yeah. and, and kind of having this yearning for a dog. And I, I just wondered what was your kind of reason behind it? Well, I had some dogs growing up and I think my favourite book was this glossy textbook that had every dog breed in it. And um, I used to just be obsessed with Border Collies and Cocker Spaniels and just any beautiful dog breed. Um, well, they're all beautiful dog breeds. Um, and then I guess I got to being an adult and I must have been in my mid-20s and I was um, in a long-term relationship and I just sort of decided it was time I've always been a dog person. Um, I've had them around me throughout my life. And I just decided, you know, you, you kind of have this revelation when you're in your 20s that, like, your life is your own and you get to make your own decisions. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I can get a dog if I want. Um, so I started looking on rescue websites because I think that's the right way to get a dog. Um, and I found this ridiculous-looking animal called Natasha on um, at Monica's Doggy Rescue, which is in Ingleside in Sydney. And she was in a little rainbow sweater and she looked so grumpy. Um, she was a little Shih Tzu cross Maltese and she'd been in the shelter for a long time because she was quite elderly. She was about eight years old when we got her. And I renamed her Lady Fluffington, um, silent middle name, Beyonce. <laughs> and uh, she was just like the first great canine love of my adult life. Um, and that's when I discovered what a wonderful support dogs can be through periods of sadness. I've been living with bipolar disorder for most of my adult life and I still um, go through periods of depression. And that sort of having her in my life throughout that time and then also the breakup of that significant relationship I was in when we got her, um, she just really consoled me and gave me comfort and joy at a time that I needed it. Um, and when she died, I really grieved for her. Um, in a way, I might grieve for a family member. I was really distraught. Um, and it took me a while, but I sort of looked at my grandma, who's no longer with us, but she was probably the, the most ardent dog person I've ever known in my life. And um, when her dog died, she found a way to have love in her heart for another dog. And I took inspiration from that and decided to get another dog um, and find a way to love him. And I think I, I love him every bit as much as Lady Flossington, if not even more in a sort of crazed, effusive way. Uh, so that's when Bertie, that's when Bertie came about. Um, so different boyfriend, uh, same breed of dog. Um, he's also a Shih Tzu with a bit of something else in there, I think, as well. But um, that's anyone's guess what other breed is in there. But we, well, we got him when we were living in London from a shelter called Battersea, which has been around for a very long time. Um, so he's almost three now. We've had him a couple of years. I never intended to get a puppy. I, I would have rather get an elderly dog. But then I saw his picture on the website and I just I couldn't help it. I just fell in love with him and I had to have him. <laughs> It's worked out very well. He's an angel, and he—he, he, I've had a, a 
pretty rough depressive episode uh, in the time since we adopted him, and he just refused to leave my side. He just sort of lay across my body or lay at my feet and just would not move, um, but also gave me the gift of needing to go outside. So where my usual instinct might have been to hibernate through the, the depression, um, you know, he needed to go for a walk every morning. So it got me out into nature, uh, having some movement and in the fresh air, which is, as we know, kind of can be very effective for our mental health yeah, treatment. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you do. (laughs) He sounds amazing. (laughs) And you describe when you you saw his photo on the dog shelters website, and you just kind of instantly knew that he was the one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't usually put much store in the idea of fate, but I feel like maybe dog fate is something I could get behind (laughs) Um, because I I really did spend several months scouring the rescue sites online. desperate to get another sort of shih tzu cross something or other just because I find them to be, I don't know what it is. I mean, they're a ridiculous looking animal. They look like um, Ewoks or gremlins. They're just a little, they're sort of flat faced little white creature. And um, I don't know why, but I just have a fascination with them. Um, So yeah, there was something about his little face. And one of the photos that was up online was of him weeing against a fence. And I found that very funny because (laughs) surely you would pick the best photos. (laughs) One of them them was him weeing, which I found really funny. And I just, I don't know, I just had a, I just had a feeling that it was the right dog for us. Yeah. Um, I I had to do a little bit of convincing um, of my boyfriend because I think it was his, he, he didn't have dogs growing up. And I think he had this idea of the perfect dog, like a spaniel that could run by your side and then fall asleep by the fireplace, and you know, like a mm. proper man dog. Um, but uh, I convinced him. Full of energy <laughs> and life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, you do talk about the fact that uh, Shih Tzus are quite sleepy and they kind of have a lot <laughs> yeah. of naps, so <laughs> may not be going yeah. on a run with him very often. Exactly. I mean, he has a little bit of energy because he's still a puppy, um, but he is pretty slow and likes to sniff a lot of things. And yeah, sleeps probably about 16 or 17 hours a day, which is pretty typical for his breed, um, which suits me quite well because I have um, quite a sort of gentle nature anyway. Mm. Um, And also I work from home, so I can write while he snoozes at my feet or sometimes on my lap, which makes it slightly more difficult to type, but I put up with it. <laughs> um, so, it, it, you know, it suits our lifestyle for him to be um, as sleepy as he is, to be honest. Um, he still requires exercise, which gets us outside, but he's not sort of, you know, tearing the house apart or chewing up any of our possessions. So well, that's something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you write in your chapter about some of the scientific and behavioural research that's been done around dogs, mm. particularly, you know, around why or how they actually do pick up on um, the mood of a human or their close yeah. human. And I was interested in that because, I, I mean, reading your experience of um, – 
of Bertie kind of picking up instantly that you need this kind of physical contact and support. Um, mm. You know, I have a similar kind of connection with um, Barney, who is a Labrador, and he just literally, if I, you know, had a moment of sadness or, or something like that, he would just like walk from across the room and sit yeah. straight next to me in front of me, you know, looking up at me, putting his head on my knees. Yeah, know, there's just yeah. that unspoken kind of deep connection that it kind of feels like you have this um, soulful closeness with a dog. What is some of that, um, I guess, hypothesizing around why a dog might be able to do that? Well, I, firstly, I'm not surprised at all that Barney behaves like that. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, there are two things that I will mention. One, um, I had this long-standing theory that my dog can smell depression on me. Um, which sounds outlandish, but it may be true. Um, I ran it by this one of the world's leading canine behavioural experts, whose name is Stanley Corrin. He's written a huge body of work on the behaviour of dogs. And I just said, listen, I think my dog can smell my depression on me. Am I mad or is that quite a good idea? Mm. And he said, no, no, you're not you're not wrong. Like it's, We don't know for sure. There's not been enough research done on it, but it's entirely possible um, because dogs can smell Parkinson's disease and they can really effectively um, smell certain types of cancer as well as malaria. And they're some of our most reliable diagnostic tests to get a dog to sniff out those types of illnesses. So it follows that perhaps depression has its own smell that we as humans can't necessarily detect. So perhaps that's how he knows something's wrong. Additionally to that, it could be that my body language changes when I'm upset. Um, you know, perhaps I'm slumping more or moving around the house more slowly, which I would say I certainly do. Um, and perhaps he picks up on something from that. The second thing I would mention is there was a lovely um, study done that basically concluded that dogs are capable of basic empathy, not only for their own species, but also for the human species. Uh, they basically did a lovely set of, of uh, experiments where they played certain noises to a dog and then monitored their reactions. So some of those noises were neutral noises, like the sound of an insect buzzing or the sound of a river rushing, uh, but others were negative or positive. So the sound of a woman crying, the sound of a dog in pain, the sound of a man laughing, and the sound of a dog being happy. And they looked at the reactions in those dogs, and basically the dogs did become distressed when they heard those negative noises in both the humans and the dogs. So the researchers do think that dogs are capable of empathy. So if you couple those two pieces of information, the fact that we think they can either smell or detect that something is wrong when we're depressed or when we're sad, with the idea that they are capable of that emotionally sophisticated um, sort of thought or empathy, then it makes sense to me that they would want help. Mm. Um, and their best way of helping is just to offer proximity and affection and comfort and to be there by your side. And I don't know how necessarily how sophisticated their thought pattern is in that, but I think there's a sort of primitive, uh, primal kind of instinct to just be with you um, and to offer you comfort in some time. And, you know, talking to a number of other people about the way their dogs help them has only reinforced that idea for me. You know, I've heard stories about people whose dogs um, have like sat, put their head exactly at the point break in their leg where they broke their leg um, because they detect that something's wrong there and they just want to be close to that person. Or, you know, dogs who stay by someone's side throughout the entire 12-week recovery period from 
from cancer treatment. Um, so it's quite remarkable, and I am constantly astonished and grateful for the way my dog behaves and the way you know other people's dogs like Barney behave as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, obviously dogs in a hospital setting are certainly something that I've seen before and that is really special. I think, um, and you do also mention that um, and it, and their role. And um, I was thinking about those kind of neurological conditions like a stroke where people might lose their ability to speak um, mm. and so that kind of unspoken interaction is even more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think certainly with stroke patients, I spoke to a man whose dog um, spends a lot of time with stroke patients in a hospital and um, certainly that lack of expectation from another living being, there's no requirement for them to have a conversation. They don't have to explain themselves. They don't even have to answer the question, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. There's just a wordless, conditionless um, affection and love there, which is can be precisely what someone in that position needs. And it's the same really for any ailment because sometimes... Sometimes it's wonderful to talk, and obviously I believe in talk therapy and compassion for other people and speaking about problems. But sometimes you just need to be in the silent presence of a loving creature, and that's where dogs can be wonderful because they're never going to ask you any complicated questions or require much from you apart from a little pat and maybe a treat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of um, my nan who had a dog uh, towards the end of her life and um, he was a, a shelter dog and she had dementia and would kind mm-hmm. of, that would be her companion that she could kind of have a conversation with or talk at. Um, she certainly didn't expect him to answer back, but she was, she did have this um, way at least of when she got lonely and, um, you know, didn't have anyone around that she could kind of interact with her her little dog and um, she may not have have had that many conversations that day but she could at least um, on the flip side just verbalize and just say things because also I I guess it seems like when you're in a, a low mood or you're having a bad time if you don't even get to just say words even if they're just to yourself you can kind of end up being very internal. Mm, absolutely. Um, I think they can be remarkably helpful for people in your grandmother's um, situation with dementia. Um, there's a story in the book, or there's several stories in the book actually, mm. about um, a schnoodle who worked in a dementia ward. Um, and that dog just had this beautiful way of bringing someone who has dementia back to themselves, back to their younger self, back to themselves in a period where they had a pet. Um, there was a beautiful example of a, a woman, an elderly woman who used to work as a vet and um, they brought the dog in and she instantly went back into vet mode and said, well, you know, what's wrong with this dog? Let me have a look and um, just went back into work mode and it kind of like woke her from the sort of slumber that you can feel as though you're in when you have dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another beautiful example of a woman who hadn't spoken in 12 weeks, um, not a word, and then when this dog jumped on her bed, she just started telling a story about another time she'd had a dog. Um, So just beautiful moments. And, and, you know, my own grandma um, benefited remarkably from having a dog around. I think it probably kept her alive for many more years than she would have been without him. They can just be the most wonderful solace, particularly for elderly people who can be lonely, no matter what their medical condition may be. 
Absolutely. Um, and one of the really fascinating studies that you referenced towards the beginning of your book um, is about that kind of brain chemistry and the effects mm. that dogs and humans have on each other um, that can kind of explain the the interaction, the benefit of the interaction and why we kind of have a, a sudden uplift in mood and um, and I guess might feel slightly less anxious or might feel yeah. a, a bit more extroverted than normal. Um, and you talk about a Japanese study from 2015 about um, the levels of oxytocin that occur in dogs and humans. And I wondered whether you could share with us um, the kind of insights that came from that study and um, how it, it wasn't really just all about what humans got out of that equation either. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It's probably my favourite piece of research, um, maybe top three from the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, this uh, Japanese researcher um, conducted a study basically because he has his own two standard poodles and he wanted to know more about his relationship with them. Um, and he invited a whole bunch of people in with their dogs um, and also for control, some people who have pet wolves. I mean, I wasn't aware that people had pet wolves, but they exist <laughs> apparently. Um, and he basically uh, took a urine test to look at their levels of oxytocin. And oxytocin, just as a reminder, is that lovely hormone that we often call the hug hormone or the cuddle hormone. It's what makes us feel trusting and loved. It's what helps us bond with our parents when we're babies. It's a very important hormone for, for building trust and loyalty. Um and he, so he wanted to measure their oxytocin levels and then he basically asked them to stay in a room with their dog and make as much eye contact with their dog and or wolf as possible throughout a 30-minute period and then he would take their urine test again to test whether their oxytocin levels had increased at all. And the results were really interesting. So um, for human beings, their oxyto the people who had dogs, um, their oxytocin levels increased by 300%. Um, the people who had wolves, there was no effect. Um, but for the dogs, which I think is really interesting, the dogs had a 130% increase in oxytocin as well. So it truly is a sort of mutual um, thing um, that is reciprocal between humans and their pets. Um, so oxytocin is that thing that makes us feel comfortable and warm and cosy. Um, we should also be experiencing a drop in cortisol as well, which is our stress hormone. Um, and that happens through eye contact, but it also happens through the action of stroking an animal. So that explains why looking into your animal's face, you know, stroking, having a cuddle with your animal uh, makes you feel lovely and warm. And I think that's rather nice to have some science to back up something that we already suspect about our relationship with our pets. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to hear that the dogs also have an, you kind of have an objective measure of the fact yeah, that exactly. yeah, there's an <laughs> there's an effect. <laughs> it's not just all take. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, it's lovely. It did make me think that you can't really get angry at your dog if they drop their slobbery covered toy at your feet for you to throw it again, because actually you're getting something out of it more than they are. Yeah, <laughs> mathematically. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Exactly, and apparently they get. They get a hit of endorphins when they lick you. Aww. Something I've heard recently, which explains because my dog just 
is obsessed with trying to lick us and we don't usually let him do it. Um, but it explains. It's nice to have a little explanation to understand why they're so compelled to do it. Mm. I suspect it may also be a sort of form of affection, um, but who knows? Yeah. Well, I think um, my family just got a dog, not my immediate family, but extended family called Bertie, and he's a tiny little puppy. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I think he's a terrier. Um, but he just like every time you tried to touch his head, he'd just stick his head up and lick your hand like you just non-stop yeah. licking <laughs> so sweet. it's adorable yeah you definitely have to keep washing your hands though yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so funny um I was really also interested in another element which is particularly important and emerging as a real area that's been developing around assistance dogs particularly mm. in the area of mental health which we have uh, alluded to but there is in fact a kind of training process um, for different kinds of dogs who can undertake a certain type of training to become a mental health assistance dog and they do mm. have um, I guess a kind of outfit or a kind of coat to wear um, when you take them out to to show that they're there to provide a specific kind of assistance to the person they're with um, and it means that they can accompany them to places where dogs often aren't able to be. Could you share with us that um, kind of developing area and how assistance dogs that have often been, you know, traditionally known to assist with people like um, who might have epilepsy or diabetes Mm. or um, blindness, but also now in mental health? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think, as you say, it's a kind of an emerging thing. And I suspect over the coming years, we will see it become more common. Um, But basically, yeah, uh, we already know about guide dogs. Some of us know about diabetic alert dogs and ones with epilepsy. But um, these days, it's becoming more and more common for dogs to be trained to become an emotional or mental health support dog or a therapy dog. Um, So I spoke to one woman, for instance, who has complex post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as a number of other mental health issues. Um, And she got a border terrier called Sir Jack Spratica, which is quite a name. (laughs) And he, for example, basically to qualify, this is in the UK, but to qualify as her mental health assistance dog, which means that he can have a special coloured harness that, as you say, allows him to go anywhere he wants with her. Um, He has to qualify um, by doing three things that help her through life. And for him, that means he can fetch the landline phone for her if she is incapacitated and needs to be able to call emergency services. Um, He can bring her her medication if she gives him the right command. Um, So wherever that is in in her apartment, he can go and do that. Um, And he can also um, lay across her chest to prevent anxiety or panic attacks. And so being able to do those three helpful things means that he qualifies as a mental health assistance dog, which means he's allowed to go with her wherever he needs to go. Uh, And that has had the most tremendous effect on her life. Um, She has companionship and really, you know, she's um, self-harmed over many years um, and has sort of overdosed and tried to take her life on many occasions. And uh, since she's had the dog, it's essentially given her a reason to stick around. Um, and, and I can't think of a more convincing argument for the existing the existence of those kinds of dogs um, because, and it's not the only time I've met someone through my research who's had their life literally saved um, by that kind of animal. 
Um, it's quite remarkable. There's another man I spoke to who also has PTSD, but he's a veteran. Um, and his dog stopped him from killing himself twice. She just uh, wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do. And, um, and now she goes with him everywhere. And if he is having night terrors, she um, puts herself on his body until he wakes up. Sometimes she's been known to sort of scratch him to wake him up and get him out of those night ter- terrors. Uh, so they can just be trained to do the most wonderful things and be, you know, truly curative. I, I don't think a dog is necessarily a cure to anything, but mm. they can be so healing and restorative and supportive and it can make the world of difference in someone's life. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, and I do, you know, note that there are so many different ways that dogs have and can save lives like there are actually working rescue dogs in so many different circumstances who can you know jump into a river um you know and and literally save a human being so there are just so many ways that they are beyond talented um a very special (laughs) (laughs) special animal um you highlight in your book the fact that you know australia um human relationships with dogs have been around for a very long time Mm. and you know that we have really and they have really evolved alongside us and our developing kind of companionship um, with them in terms of your research and and the different stories that you tell in this book um, what are some of the kind of striking ways that you feel or that you saw in your research that dogs have really um, evolved to be or, or that they seem to be kind of uniquely placed to do? And there's mm. kind of examples that you might, that you had g- given that I hadn't considered around autism. Um, but yeah, I just wondered um, about some of the things we may not kind of instantly think of when we associate um, humans and and dogs. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. We have essentially evolved alongside one another. There's evidence that um, that humans were associating with wolves and then later the sort of cuter version of the wolf, the dog, um, as many as, you know, 33,000 years ago, depending on which scientist you speak to. Um, and there's evidence that, like our ancestors migrated across huge parts of the world, taking their dogs with them. So they've certainly been by, by our side for a long time. Mm. Um, and buried with them. That, and buried with them, exactly. Yeah. There have been dog remains found next to families as, as long ago, um, as from as long ago as eight or 9,000 years in Siberia and North America um, and elsewhere around the world, which is really fascinating um, and just speaks to that long-standing relationship that we've had with them. Um, obviously, we've bred them to be their cutest possible selves, which <laughs> doesn't always uh, work out well. There are some species of dog, certain sort of bulldogs and flat-faced dogs who have difficulty breathing because mm. we've bred them to a state where it's not sort of um, healthy. Um, so I think it's, you know, as human beings, we don't always get it right, and I think there's some sadness there in the way we've bred dogs. But in, the, in a more positive sense, um, we have bred and trained dogs to be remarkable um, assistance animals to us. And you mentioned the autism um, support dog. I interviewed a, an 11-year-old boy called Cody um, who basically was just fixated on pugs. His whole, his whole life was about pugs. And before he was able to get a pug, he would 
uh, if he was having um, a sad moment or an angry moment at school or at home, he would just consult a little scrapbook where he had pictures of pugs um, and encouraging statements like imagine patting a pug. And he would sit down and he would imagine patting a pug and it would help him. Um, he's since got, he since adopted a five-year-old deaf pug called Missy um, who's just changed his life. She makes him into a sociable, confident eloquent young man um and has changed like his confidence levels have just skyrocketed and that's quite a popular sort of program of becoming more popular um the autism support dog program there are um, various organizations around the world that work to um train a dog to be an appropriate support animal for someone who goes through autism and it's it's not necessarily complicated training they don't need to be doing anything particularly fancy. It's just that they've got the right nature um, and they're able to be sort of stabilising and comforting in those moments of distress that a lot of people who have autism go through on a regular basis. Um, so it's just remarkable to be able to see that. Um, probably the other example that I think is really interesting is the diabetic alert dog. Um, I met a teenage girl who has a border collie, and when she was 13, she started training him to be able to smell when she had high or low blood sugar, um, and she trained him to wake up her parents. So um, that – sorry, it's a girl. The dog is a girl. Mm. Uh, the dog um, sleeps beside her and monitors her during the night, and if – her blood sugar goes high or low. She just runs into the other room and gets parents for help. And I met her dad as well, and her dad thinks that the dog saves his daughter's life probably once a week, um, which is remarkable. And just yeah. one of those, you know, I don't think I really was particularly aware that that sort of dog existed before I started researching it. So it's just been fantastic to to speak to people about that. Mm. And um, there are so many different kind of breeds that can be an assistance dog depending on the type mm. of thing that they need to do or be able to do. Um, yes. But I'm interested in that kind of fact that Labradors and Golden Retrievers have traditionally been um, a go-to dog for mm. providing assistance and they're very iconic um, given you know their association with being a guide dog for example. Um, yeah. What do you understand or know the kind of reason behind why or what it is about Golden Retrievers and Labradors that kind of lends them to this type of work? Well, I think it's it's quite a simple explanation. I think simply they just more reliably have that sweet temperament um, combined with a certain level of intelligence that allows them to pick up um, the obedience training that they have to go through. Mm. So a lot of um, like autism support programs work with Labradors and Golden Retrievers, of course, as the guide dog programs. Um, there are a lot of Labradors and Golden Retrievers who are bred for those sorts of programs will start out life training um, to be a guide dog uh, where they go to something called puppy raisers who are people who uh, take the puppy into their home before they're placed with a blind person and they are responsible for the initial training, obedience training that they go through. Um, so I, I wouldn't use the word failure, but some dogs are not meant to be guide dogs, then they don't pick up on all the um, the skills that are needed. And so they are often reassigned if they're too enthusiastic or too easily distracted. 
um, or perhaps even too affectionate. The guide dog has to be able to really focus on their job because it's their job to guide someone through the world who cannot see. Um, so sometimes a dog is too exuberant to do that and then they get reassigned to a different job. For instance, I met a very sweet dog called Gwen who is a Labrador um, and she works as a court companion dog. So she works essentially as a therapy dog who goes um, and helps out witnesses and victims of crimes before they go into court. Um, so she was started out on the guide dog training program but was reassigned. But um, she, you know, they, they breed Labradors and Golden Retrievers because they're the most likely to be able to follow through on those training programs. And their temperament is just reliably the right level yeah. for that kind of work. Um, I know there are other dogs that people have tried with, but I think if you're working with a commercial program that needs to, um, you know, raise as many competent guide dogs as possible and dogs for other jobs, and it makes sense to be doing a Labrador or a Golden Retriever. I guess also there's the factor of their size. You know, I think mm. being a guide dog, you need a certain amount of weight for them to be guiding a human being through the world. I don't think a guide chihuahua would have quite the same effect. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be quite as wouldn't be visible to cars. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I think there's something I think there's probably something also in the branding. You know, you mm. recognise a guide dog because you know that that type of breed, um, coupled with the type of harness that you can see is is something is is a dog you should leave alone to do their job. You know, I spoke to a woman who has a guide dog and um, it was really distressing listening to how she's affected by strangers in the world who don't respect the boundaries she obviously needs for her dog to do her job. Yeah. And people will come and pat the dog even though there's a sign saying, do not pat me. And people will, you know, interfere with her personal space in order to get to the dog when really it should be common knowledge that you don't do that um, when you can see that a guide dog is busy working. Exactly. Yeah. No, I certainly understand her frustration with that. Um, I, I know that whenever I take Barney for a walk, I get stopped every like two meters by kids <laughs> and adults who just want to like pat him and he just stands there and doesn't move and, you know, he's just so placid, just like completely Please. unaffected <laughs> and very smart. I've got to say, I think he's very intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I mean, you know from having read my book how much I love my dog, yeah. but I don't think I would say the same about him. I'm not sure how intelligent he is. <laughs> when when we are out on a walk, if we see a cat um, at the park or just on the road, mm. he will immediately run back to our house to bark at us and he'll go to the garden and look for it, even though he just saw it down the road. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I'm not sure how bright he is, but he has many other good qualities going for him. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, I like I like the challenge of, um, yeah, like sometimes we have mind games about when he's has to go outside and he'll like just run away from me because he doesn't want to go outside and he's so good at like avoiding me and knowing which way to run so that <laughs> I ended up having to essentially bribe him and like have a mental kind of um, negotiation rather than a physical yeah. negotiation because he just wasn't That's interested. <laughs> I like the sound of Barney. Yeah, he's fabulous, but I, I am yeah, very biased. <laughs> As I think you are, and rightfully so. Yes, very much so, very much so. Yeah. I, I, I think I used a saying in the book that every dog 
person thinks their dog is the best one and we're all correct. Yes. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to end our conversation. <laughs> Enough Lovely. said. Um, people can actually follow your dog on Instagram, can't they? Yes. Yes. It's at little Bertie the dog. Absolutely. Go ahead and do that. I love for, um, seeing dogs on Instagram and um, yeah, fantasizing about having um, another or a dog in my life who's yeah. um, super lovely and very smart. Um, I think I'll go say hi, Bar- hi to Barney later today. Yes, good idea. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kate, for chatting my with pleasure. us. It's just been so fun. And, um, yeah, congratulations on this book, which obviously is um, really fascinating to read and so beautifully and engagingly written. So um, oh, thank, thank you, you for so that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's very kind. It's my glad pleasure. you liked it. I did. I did. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure lots of people will as well, even if they're cat people. Yeah, <laughs> I've been speaking there with Kate Lever, who is a journalist and an author, and she's written a new book called Good Dog, which is out through HarperCollins Australia. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.